This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. This is episode number 8, recorded on May 2nd, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Lars Wagner. Welcome back, Lars. Thank you, Tim. And today we have a new co-host, Lionel Chow. Welcome, Lionel. Thanks. So all of us are from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Today on Twipple, we're going to be discussing Seneca Valley virus. Sounds exotic. Remember, in this, for this episode or future episodes, if you have a question or comment you want to send it in, please email us at twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. So today the paper I picked for our conversation uh, appeared in a journal called Neuro-Oncology in the 13th uh, issue this year, 2011, although it was available online uh, late last year in November. It's called a single intravenous injection of oncolytic coronavirus, SVV-001, eliminates medulloblastomas in primary tumor-based orthotopic xenograft mouse models. It comes primarily out of Baylor College, uh, Baylor Children's Hospital, Baylor College of Medicine, Texas Children's Hospital, a uh, large group of uh, interdisciplinary investigators there in collaboration with a company called Neotropics that has been studying this Seneca Valley virus. So... I picked it because it's novel and interesting, and the title's quite provocative, suggesting that this a single dose of this one virus can cure these mice of this difficult brain tumor. Lionel, you study a lot of uh, neuro diseases, uh, neuro cancers. Could you say a few words about medulloblastoma? Sure. Uh, medulloblastoma is the most common um, uh, high-grade brain tumor that occurs in the pediatric population. And um, it affects uh, roughly 500 people, 500 kids uh, per year in the United States alone. So while um, conventional uh, therapy, which is consisted of a combination of uh, aggressive uh, surgery, um, radiotherapy, and a very aggressive chemotherapy, has the ability to um, cure a significant number of these patients, uh, we still fare quite poorly with uh, certain subgroups of, of patients, and we're just now starting to understand which uh, molecular subgroups of these patients we're not doing very well with. Uh, and then secondarily, the patients that we aren't able to um, uh, achieve a cure with in this very aggressive first-line therapy, uh, we have a really hard, difficult problem um, now uh, achieving a, a rescue for those patients. So definitely anything um, that is available to treat our relapsed patients or to reduce the side effects on my primary treatments, which are very aggressive right now, uh, would be a great benefit to the uh, general community. In this paper, they wanted to study the use of this virus to treat these cancers. Obviously, we need to always start off with some sort of model of the cancer. So they actually used a mouse model where they injected primary cancer cells from patients into mice that were immunodeficient, um, and these mice formed tumors in their brains. And I think one of the attractions about this paper to me is they were using these primary samples from patients, so not cells grown in a lab in a plastic dish that changed over 
long periods of time. And they chose this virus because uh, previous studies and publications had shown it's quite, uh, it, it infects and kills a variety of different kinds of cancer types, but mainly those with neuroendocrine features. And it wasn't clear, I think, whether medulloblastoma really fell into that category, and I sort of got the neuro word in its, you know, its origin. So, right. um, but so they, they found in, uh, they used uh, 10 different primary cells from patients that they have in their table one, and six of these were from anaplastic cases. I assume that, is that the kind of histology you were implying maybe more aggressive or refractory? Yes, uh, I think the anaplastic group are the, are the patients that are typically regarded as being high-risk patients. Um, so uh, a, a greater proportion of those patients do uh, uh, fail initial therapy. So Lars, um, this is sort of a broad range of ages, 2 years, 11 years, 7 years, 14 years. Is that pretty much typical, even one patient 15 months old? Uh, has that been typical in your practice? It, it is, and while... Uh, the median age of presentation is probably in the early childhood or early school age uh, range. We do see medulloblastomas occur in infants as well as teenagers and sometimes even in young adults. So it is a wide um, age span. So in this paper, they first tested whether these cells in culture, uh, although they haven't been passaged a long time in culture, they came basically uh, at early, we call early passage out of patients, uh, were killed by uh, infecting uh, cells with virus and Four of the six that were anaplastic, they tagged as being sensitive to killing by the virus. But only one of the six, one of the four that were non-anaplastic, so they had two classic and two nodular, were were killed by the virus. And I suppose if you're going to have one or the other, that's the way you'd want it, since the more aggressive ones seem to be sensitive. Yeah, I think that's the really uh, that's one of the uh, very attractive features of this uh, paper is that uh, it, there seems to be, although I'm sure the because of the small numbers of cell lines, the statistics are not significant, but there seems to be a trend towards uh, this virus being more effective uh, for the anaplastic group, which would be a, a great benefit. Yeah, I guess one of the things that concerned me a little bit is in their figure one where they actually quantify how much these cells are being killed by the virus. At 72 hours, uh, those four that were killed that were anaplastic and, and the one that was a classic, although they reached statistical significance, if you look at the amount of cells remaining, there was still a fair amount. It wasn't like uh, it wiped the culture out clear of all the cells. So actually, it, when I look at this data, I think, oh, you know, yes, it's it's affecting the cells, but not it's not wiping them out, and, and I wouldn't expect a real dramatic effect on actual tumors based on that. However, they did go on to show that um, these these did have an effect on on actual tumors. First, though, they really wanted to address this cancer stem cell hypothesis that's very common now in the field, that there are certain cells that represent a minority of the tumor that uh, actually generate the rest of the tumor and that they differ. They're, they're more stem-like or progenitor-like. Various They've been called various things, tumor progenitor cells, tumor-initiating cells, cancer stem cells. It's highly controversial in the field exactly what these are and how to identify them. And I think in this paper, they're very appropriately cautious with a lot of caveats about that. Mm -hmm. But they do state that CD33 expression is one of the main markers that at least identifies a subset of these cells. And so they show in figure two that this virus infects and kills the CD133 positive cells just as well as the CD133 negative cells. Um, and interestingly, they also uh, showed that the virus prevents these cells from forming those neurospheres, these three-dimensional sphere cultures in stem cell media, 
that have EGF and FGF growth factors in them without any serum, and that that has been shown to be a marker of tumor genesis or at least a surrogate uh, marker of that. So it suggests that even if there are other cells in there that are CD133 negative, but, um, you know, that are tumor-initiating mm-hmm. cells, that if those are involved in forming these spheres, they're killed as well. So that I think that was an important point in this paper. But the real, the real meat of the paper really is, is looking at the in vivo data, uh, which is both in figure three figure and figure four, uh, when they were giving a single dose of this virus IV to animals that they had um, implanted these tumors into their brains. And they showed in both of these figures that if you look for virus in the brain, you find it in the tumor cells, but you don't find it in any of the normal brain cells. And the, the mice tolerated the treatment well. They, they didn't lose a lot of weight or have neurologic changes. And then looking at the growth curves in figure four, they were able to extend the life of these mice by a significant amount. So they showed two different models. Each of those models, the mice that weren't treated or, or that were given control treatment um, died with, on average, about 50 days. And then the, those that got a single dose of the virus IV uh, their average lifespan, if, if they were treated early on, two weeks after the tumor uh, was implanted, was extended to over 200 days. So four- to five-fold prolongation of life. Now, these animals did eventually, most of them, succumb, but uh, there was a subset population in, in each of these models where they seemed to have cures, and when they looked for tumor later on, they didn't find it. So certainly it seems like um, that single dose of virus was pretty potent at treating these these cancers in these mice. Um, any thoughts or comments? Not yeah. Well, one uh, one comment I would uh, have, uh, especially with these long term survivors, I think I think this data is really uh, uh, provocative. I agree with you with that. Um, it would have been nice, um, and, and I know they have this uh, capability at Bailey. It would have been nice to do some small animal MRI imaging. Um, to be able to follow these tumors, especially at the beginning of treatment. Because even though the data is um, uh, statistically significant and 10 out of 10 mice in the um, in the control-treated group did die of tumor, um, I, I, you know, it would have been nice to have this visual evidence that all of the mice that were treated um, at the time of the initial treatment did have what yeah, they the claim, tumor, right. exactly, did have what they claim to say have uh, one to two millimeter tumors present in the brain. So MRI imaging would have really complemented the study uh, uh, nicely, I think. Well, the, one of the things that struck me was when they did the immunohistochemistry and they didn't really find the, the, tum- the virus in the non-tumor cells, they did find it in uh, micrometastatic nodules, you know, in other places in the brain. So it's as if the virus sort of sought out where the tumor was. And, right. Um, that that was pretty impressive. The other point they were making is that, you know, we didn't know before this if the virus crosses the blood-brain barrier or not and reaches these tumor sites, and it certainly seems to do that. They rounded the paper off by looking at some mechanism of cell death from this virus. Uh, The virus induced some features of autophagy, which is a a mechanism of cell death, not much of apoptosis, but um, uh, they tried to uh, induce autophagy with some drugs like rapamycin, which, which did induce autophagy, and they were hoping that might potentiate the effects of the virus, but in fact, it inhibited its replication. Right. So um, I think those are some important, as we move this field forward, important observations to know what uh, can we combine these viruses with uh, to make them better. And what they looked at isn't going to help, at least for this virus. But 
As a uh, clinician, I had a couple of questions for our scientists in terms of the way that this therapy uh, could be used clinically. Um, many patients with uh, recurrent medulloblastoma may be on steroids, and what would the proposed um, concurrent use of steroids do to the effectiveness of the Seneca Valley virus? Yeah, so actually let's um, back up one step and say uh, this virus is under clinical trial not only in adults but now in pediatrics. Uh, for those listeners who want to see a little bit more about it, they can log on to solvingkidscancer.org and click on the webinar that I and some others did in January. Mike Burke, who's the uh, principal investigator of that uh, ch children's oncology group trial, uh, is on there with a slide set talking about the trial. And it, and so it's, it is being used, uh, tested clinically in these early phase one safety studies. And so the question of what... Could you know? Could we add patients with medulloblastoma to that trial, for example? Or uh, is it time to write a new trial to test uh, this virus in those patients? Um, so it's too early to know the results of that trial, and hopefully we'll find those out sometime in the next year or so. Uh, but in general, for the oncolytic viruses, steroids have shown to um, help in terms of allowing uh, suppressing a little bit of the antiviral immune response and allowing the virus to replicate. Now. The concern in that trial and some of the others is that you can sometimes get some swelling, inflammatory response to the virus infection, some edema, and that if, if the, the tumor can sometimes get a little bit bigger before it gets smaller when it's going to respond. So there's concern about that happening in the brain and causing adverse events. So I think we're going to have to figure out carefully how to enroll these kinds of patients in these trials and see if that is a problem. Um, most of the viruses that have been put... Uh, treated, used in patients with brain tumors like HSV, they've been direct injections into the tumor and often after surgical resection. So I think their swelling is not as big a concern because you've created space by doing the surgical resection and so forth. Uh, but to your point, um, steroids, you know, would help would help that swelling perhaps. So um, it's not a it's not a clear answer, and we're going to have to figure out how to test it in the safest, carefulest way. Um, a second question relating to the immune system is that these, um, the model being tested here is in immunodeficient uh, mice, and do you think that that might have impacted on the effectiveness of the therapy? Yeah, again, a great question, and they addressed that in their discussion a bit, saying that um, you know that's something that's a little bit unknown, but but they do say that in immunocompetent mice, in, in other models, they found uh, that it takes eight days in the mice and 11 days in people to generate a, a good titer, antiviral immune titer. I, I forgot to mention at the beginning that most patients have not been exposed to Seneca Valley virus. It's mainly been found originally isolated as a tissue culture contaminant. It's not associated with any particular disease. Uh, but these studies have been done looking at the immune response. And so there's a period of time before you generate an antivirus immune response. And in addition, they've been able to detect virus longer than that thinking with the thought that virus is able to stay within the tumor or pass from cell to cell and basically evade the immune response for a time. So I do think, though, that that's an issue that um, is going to have to be addressed. Most of the trials, at least the pediatric trial, is a single dose. And so what's going to be the efficacy of multiple doses, especially since this is a systemically administered virus? Looking at some of the other viruses that have been tested, uh, they've shown that actually you can give higher and higher titers. If you start off with a 
relatively lower dose. Subsequent doses, you can give higher amounts to patients. They'll tolerate it, and you basically overwhelm the the antibody response. You have a lot more virus particles than there are antibodies, and so you can still get virus to the tumor on subsequent injections. I'm not sure that that's been very well tested yet with the Seneca Valley virus. Any other comments or questions? Well, I think uh, one uh, one sort of additional issue um, would be, and, and Lars pointed out that the uh, age group for these patients is um, in the early childhood age group or early school age group. So um, one thing they didn't look at was whether or not um, this virus, uh, in addition to be able to, being able to infect uh, tumor cells rather specifically, um, there's some concern that the uh, therapies that are directed against uh, tumors and particularly maybe the therapies that can, that can uh, hit the cancer stem cells may also hit normal stem cells. So uh, so it would have been nice to look at um, um, the stem cell niche in the brains that they looked at. And then they probably have looked at it and maybe... Um, um, it was negative, for, so they did, but they didn't comment on whether or not the stem cells within the normal stem cells within these brains were affected. Yeah, so they didn't see um, any evidence of virus particles, as far as I am aware, in their studies on tissue sections in the subventricular zone right. or okay. other places where they they know the stem cells to to reside. But that that is an important question, and even though they didn't pick them up, it's possible there could be some virus particles yeah. there. Uh, again, though, the mice seem to tolerate this therapy That's well. True, yeah. uh, a long days. time. I know they followed them out to 200 and some plus days yeah. um, and and beyond. And uh, so they probably didn't have a dramatic effect on the normal stem cells. That, I think that's an important issue for this field in general that still has yet to be resolved about the effect of these viruses on normal cells. All in all, though, a very uh, uh, promising preclinical study. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, this is kind of, this is the kind of work that's quite encouraging for us to move forward, especially in a difficult to treat uh, disease. And so I think it gives us some hope that there are new things on the horizon that uh, can be tested and hopefully tested soon. So I think that's the only topic we had for discussion for today's episode. So I thank you all for listening, and don't hesitate to write in your questions or comments at TWIPO, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.